invite you to open God's Word this morning to the book of Genesis, chapter 22. The book of Genesis, chapter 22, as we read this evening and consider a very familiar story to most of us who have been born and raised in the church, and that's the sacrifice of Isaac by his father Abraham. Those outside of the church may not be quite so familiar with this passage if you were not raised in in the church, and yet uh, this too is the word of God for us to consider this evening. Genesis 22, after these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am, he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they both of them went together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold. The fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place of which Abraham, or which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's now bow our heads and ask for God's blessing upon it this evening. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word that was read and heard read tonight. Pray that you'll be with Pastor Bob as he leads us into this discussion of this word, as we look into the providence of God and what a blessed assurance we can have in knowing that you are the God who provides. So we pray that you'll be with us this evening. Help us to listen attentively to what is said and take it to our hearts that we'll go forth from here to live lives more pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we could take, as we look at this passage and define the term that is before us, we we could just do it linguistically. 
If we did that, we'd have pro verde, which means the pro means in front of or before, and the verde means to see. So in a certain sense, providence simply means to see beforehand, to see ahead of time, to see before it occurs. But in theology, in our understanding of providence, in a spiritual sense, as it comes to us from God's Word, it is much more than just God seeing beforehand. Our Westminster Confession, or the Westminster Larger Catechism, defines providence in this way. What are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures, ordering them and all their actions to His own glory. That's the truth. That is the truth of how the world operates. That is the truth of today, it's the truth of yesterday, and it is the truth of tomorrow. This is what God's Word teaches us. Let me read it again. God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures, ordering them and all their actions to His own glory. Perhaps we could simply shorten providence to God's purpose and plan over all of life. That being said, it's important as we deal with this definition that I lay before you some lies that are out there. Lies that are all too common. Lies that sometimes even creep into those of Protestant faith, those perhaps even who are Orthodox Presbyterians. One false view of how the world operates and works, apart from the truth of God's providence, of God's plan, and God's control over all things, is something called deism. It's an old word. We don't use it much anymore. It was pretty prevalent, uh, probably more in the 1700s uh, than it is today. Deism means simply this. There is some acknowledgement of God. There's a head nod. Oh, yes, God. Yes. God exists. Yes. And God created But God, as far as the interworkings of this world, God, as far as being involved in some way in the events of this world, no. The classic way of understanding deism uh, still holds true. It's that God is some sort of great clockworker. Hopefully when I'm in Germany, I'll get to see a German cuckoo clock, at least one. Okay, and I'll think of this example again. Somebody who, who builds beautiful clock, sets it in motion, and then goes off into another room and occupies himself with something else while the clock continues to tick. 
That's the way some people view this world. Yes, yes, God created it. Yes, God exists. But God is not involved in the events of life. That's all, that's all determined by the mechanisms that are functioning there. Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers, is perhaps one of the, the better known of the deists. That's why, as I have mentioned to you before, in Jefferson's Bible... He cut out all of the miracles because he, he, couldn't, he couldn't accept the fact that God would come into this world and act against the forces of the clock. That God could actually come into this world and perform a miracle and feed 5,000 people with some bread and some fish. No, there's mechanisms. Five loaves and two fish don't feed 5,000. I'm not including that in my Bible. That was his view of how the world operated. There are those who, who assign it all to fate. Some dark, foreboding thing that's going on. That, that life just goes on. There is no purpose or reason as to why things happen. We have a little saying, and maybe you have caught yourself, or maybe you're going to think, oh, I think I've used that before. But it, it, sort, of, it, it sort of just captures this, this idea that the world runs by fate. That's the way the cookie crumbles. It's interesting, it's never that's the way the cookie is baked. See, it's never the positive, it's never the good, it's always the bad, Right? That Murphy Law guy, right? That, the, the people who are Murphys in this world, oh yeah, it's going to be bad, it's going to be bad. It's kind of a fatalistic view of life. That it's dark, there's a negativity, there is a pessimism about life. It's fatalistic. It's, it's like there is some God, some being out there named fate, and he's just trying to make everybody's life as miserable as possible. Not God, but fate. And then, of course, there are the chance folks, the luck folks. And obviously, we have a lot of them because of the number of ads we have nowadays for online gambling and casinos and all of that other stuff. But how often do not even God's people fall into that? right? Oh, it's just chance, or you were just lucky. Sometimes we use it in a trivial way. We're in the midst of some game, or, oh, that was just lucky. Well, I've never seen such luck before. Maybe some of you who hunt, okay, when you, you don't get the, the, the big buck, you say that about the guy who did, oh, he's just lucky. I don't know. Guy don't know what he's doing, and that he's out there in the woods, and he gets a 10-point buck. I don't know how it happens. Just lucky. No, there is no such thing. The world doesn't operate by chance or by luck. But you know, that, that even creeps within theology. We've got this group of people that we refer to as the Arminians. And, and they're, they're the chance folks of theology. They're the folks who are like, well, they heard the gospel. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Nobody knows if they're going to accept Jesus today or not. 
Nobody knows if they're going to come to belief. God doesn't know. He's sitting on pins and needles waiting. Oh, are they going to accept me or aren't they? As if God does not know. As if God is not in control. As if God is not ordering the events of life. Or there's the folks who see God as some sort of democracy God. That, that God only is involved in the good things of life. Only if it's good is God involved. God can't be involved in hurricanes. God can't be involved in tornadoes. God can't be involved in, in floods. God, God can't do any of those things. God, God isn't there. God only does the good things for the greatest number of people. Lots of folks jump on that bandwagon today. But probably in our world today, okay, the, the, the thing that operates most people's mindset as far as how the world operates from day to day is it sort of st- it's, it's close to deism. I'll call it the closed system. It's a clock but it has no maker. The world is just a clock. How did it appear? Just arranged itself. Well, isn't there a clockmaker? Isn't there at least a creator of the clock? No, no creator. The pieces of the clock just came together and now the world functions by that. It's even a step away, we would say, from the deism of the early... 1700s and so on. Because it removes God from the picture. And of course, once you remove God from the picture, you're going to have nothing but a very fatalistic, mechanical way in which the world operates. Everything is controlled. Oh, we know the word, don't we? We know the word. We've heard it for a year and a half. Right? There is no God in control. We all know it's mechanical. It all works by these certain principles. Always, always, always. It's called science, isn't it? It's a closed system. God can't intervene. God can't do anything about that. There are no other ways. It's just this way. And that's the only way it can be. In the midst of that, comes Genesis chapter 22. So we know the truth that God is in control and God has a purpose. God has a plan. God is ordering events. Life is not random. Life is not by chance. Life is not fatalistic. God's not just behind the good stuff that happens. God's not some clockmaker standing in the background. And we certainly do not live within a closed system. We know the truth. But where are we taught it? Let me give you four passages. We're going to start here in Genesis chapter 22. But Genesis 22 kind of prevails over the entire rest of the message tonight. It's particularly Abraham's two statements. The one statement that he makes to Isaac back there in verse 8. Where Isaac is looking around 
He's got it figured out that we've got wood, we've got fire, we've brought that up to the mountain, but Dad, where's the sacrifice? Now understand, okay, all that goes into this. In the background is, Abraham knows it's to be Isaac. And as the passage goes on, Abraham fully intends to do it. It's what the angel of God tells us. And yet Abraham tells the two men, we're going over there to worship and we will come back. So when he's asked the question by his own son, where's the sacrifice? His answer is, God will provide. God will provide. Provide. Providence. God will provide. God's providence is in control. God's providence is what rules and governs this event right here between you and I, Isaac. And then when after the, the angel visits and says, Stop, Abraham, you don't have to do it. I know now you would not withhold your son, your own son. There is the ram caught in the thicket. Chance? Is that chance? Is that a closed system? Is that a God who's off in the distance as God has talked to Abraham, as God has communicated to Abraham, as God has stopped Abraham from the sacrifice of his son? Is that a God who's not around? Is it just lucky there was a, a ram in the thicket that day? Or is it the God who will provide? Well, certainly from Abraham's point of view, verse 14, he sees this as the providence of God. God's providing. God's taking care. God's plan. God's provision. So much so that he names the place the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh is what he calls the place. And obviously we know in our theology, we know biblically, this place becomes the place okay, that eventually will become the temple mount where sacrifices are brought, picturing for us the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The Lord indeed will provide. Or we could go to Genesis chapter 50 where we have Joseph communicating with his brothers after the death of his father. Dad has died, and the brothers are kind of going, okay, now we're going to get it. Now, we're, now Joseph's going to unleash on us. Joseph is going to tear into us now after what we did to him. Joseph comes back to them, and he says, it's not going to happen, guys. I'm not going to do that. You meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. Does Joseph see God as, as being distant, as being a clockmaker? Does, does Joseph look at his rise and ascending to this second in command as some sort of lucky break? No. He sees this as the hand of God. This is God at work. 
This is God in control. God so organized all the events of his life. God so put the pieces so together that at the end of his life, he can look back and he can say, God had a plan. God had a plan. God has a purpose. So we see this foundation of providence in the name that Abraham gives to God. Secondly, in the plan of God that Joseph speaks of. Thirdly, in the sovereignty of God. And I just keep your finger here at Genesis 22 and go with me to the book of Job, chapter 42. Job has been through all sorts of stuff in this book. We're at the end of the book. Been through personal suffering, personal loss, personal affliction. And he's had to put up with some friends who are not much help. They've only increased the agony of the problems. Job himself has grown a little bitter. He's grown a little skeptical. He's questioned God. What are you doing? God has come back, chapters 40 and 41, and addressed Job. And said, do you know what's really going on, Job? How much do you really understand, Job? How much can you really comprehend? How how big is your mind? How much power do you have, Job? Do you you have the knowledge of behemoth and how he works and how he operates in the sea? Do you you understand Leviathan? Job, do do you get the stars? And when God is done addressing Job, or we could say undressing Job from his pride and his bitterness, here's Job. Listen to his words, Job chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. What's the problem? Job's finally come to the understanding that God is the God of providence because God is sovereign over all things. God is in control of all and every single event of life. Peter even goes so far to say it has to do with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He addresses the Jewish people. You meant it for evil. You murdered the Son of God. But it wasn't outside of God's plan and it wasn't outside of God's purpose. It wasn't outside of the providence of God. See, God is not just the creator two weeks ago Sunday evening. He's not just the creator. He's not just, okay, I made it. 
Now let's see what happens. No. God so loves his creation and God so loves his creatures and God so loves his people that it's as if his hand remains active in the world. God is personally involved in the world. And think about this as as we dealt with the omnipresence of God this morning, right? He's not far off. He is close. He is near. That's why he's, he's so active in this world. He is so involved in the events of life. This morning in our, actually for the last several weeks in adult Sunday school as we've gone through the couple of different stages of church history and we see what's happening within the early church. And, and some of it is bad stuff. The persecutions, the false teaching, the drift of the church. And yet, God's got a plan. And that plan for that church is being carried out. And part of that plan of what is happening back there in 100, 200, 300, 400 AD has to do with you sitting here tonight. That's God's plan. So Intricate in all of its details. So purposeful is the hand of God involved in my life, in your life, in all of the existence of his creation. You took down a deer this weekend? That arrow is directed by the purposes of God. You arrived here safely tonight. It's because of the plan and purposes of God. You've come to know Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. It's by the plan and the purposes of God. That's his providence. The food that you will eat for supper tonight is in the plan and providence of God. Nothing outside that sovereignty of God. See, that's what Job comes to understand. He was so into himself. He was so looking at his own issues. He was so trying to justify himself that he couldn't see the hand of God at work. Turn with me, Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, in him, that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined According to the purpose of him who works a few things according to the counsel of his will. Just a few things. There's just every once in a while God's purposes 
come to fruition. That's more like me. Once in a while, it goes God's way. What does the verse say? Who works all, 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 omni, every thing according to the purpose of his will. And what is the purpose of his will for you and for me? Romans 8, 28. That you and I be conformed to the glorious image of his son, Jesus Christ. What can be better than that? God works all things so that you and I, as those who are the believers, to be conformed to the glorious image of Christ. I'm glad God's at work because I couldn't do it on my own. Neither could you. It takes the providential hand of God working and controlling all things. The fact that some of you are in a believing family and perhaps have been for generations the providential hand of God. The fact that some of you may be only second generation Christians, the providential hand of God. The fact that some of you are first generation Christians, the providential hand of God. God has worked all things according to the plan and purpose of his will. And for you and I, it's to conform us to the glorious image of Christ. To be the pattern of Christ. This is not a doctrine we want to shy away from, folks. This is not a doctrine we want to make excuses for. This is not a doctrine we want to capitulate to the world. This is not a doctrine we want to turn over to the scientists. This is not a doctrine we want to turn over to the education system. This is not a doctrine we want to turn over to the medical field. This is not a doctrine that we want to turn over to the economists. And it's certainly not a doctrine we want to turn over to the politicians. It is a doctrine we want to hold to. It is a doctrine we want to embrace. It is a doctrine we want to celebrate. It is a doctrine we want to live and breathe every day. God is in control of everything. Everything. Understand the everything. He's in control. Thirdly then, what is the call of providence? So we've talked about the definition. We've talked about the foundation. Now listen to the call. One, be steadfast. We're back in Genesis chapter 22. That's Abraham, right? <laughs> That's Abraham's faith. No, it's not Abraham's faith. It's the faith that God gave Abraham. The boy and I will return. There is a steadfastness, you see. He knows God will provide. He knows God's providence is at work. And whether that means the death of Isaac or not, 
the boy will return with him. Do you remember what the author of Hebrews says about this passage? He said, he says, Abraham's faith reasons that God can raise Isaac from the dead. So he is willing to carry out the deed of thrusting the knife into Isaac because he reasons in his faith that God will provide by raising him from the dead because he has the promise of God that says that through Isaac, through Isaac, the nations of the world will be blessed. Not through his other son Ishmael, but through Isaac. How's that going to happen if Isaac is dead? God will raise him from the dead. Because God's got a plan and God's got a purpose. There's this steadfastness. It's what James talks about in James chapter 1. That when we face trials and difficulties and persecutions of various sorts. Remain steadfast. God's got a plan. And if persecution comes here, God's got a plan and a purpose for it. If persecution comes into your life, God's got a plan and a purpose for it. If cancer invades your life, God's got a plan and a purpose for it. If the next doctor's appointment reveals that you have a heart badly in need of some stents, God's got a plan and purpose for it. If the airplane that Pastor Bob is flying over, oh, that's a big ocean. It's flying over an ocean with, comes crashing down. God's got a plan and purpose for it. This isn't faith breaking. This is faith building. Secondly, besides being steadfast, it's being patient. Notice Abraham doesn't rush the process. Abraham doesn't go... Okay, God, come on, come on. It's just God will provide. Doesn't say when. It's not like you, you see Abraham kind of raising the knife over Isaac going, okay, God, come on, you're going to provide now? You're going to provide now? You're going to provide now? No, he's patient. God will do it. He trusts that God will be the one to provide according to the promises that he has made. Thirdly, the call is not only to be steadfast, not only to be patient, the call is to be prayerful. You see, the phrase that Abraham utters here, the Lord will provide. <laughs> you have to hear the heart of the Father, right? This is not cold callousness. This is not a man whose heart is a heart of stone. This is a father hearing his son ask a question that he was hoping his son would not ask him. Where's the sacrifice? Do you hear the prayer? Do you hear it? The Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. 
the one who becomes the sacrifice, the one who becomes the Isaac, the one who becomes the provision of God for your sin and mine, is the one who taught us to pray. Not our will, but your will be done. Your will be done. The submissive Isaac. God will provide. Pray it. See, providence is not this cold doctrine sitting out there. Providence is the doctrine we pray. Thy will be done. Oh, may thy will be done. Not my will. Not my sinful, selfish, self-absorbed, self-focused, limited, unable to see beyond the steps that I take, my, myself who can't see the next day. No, not my will. Thy will. The one who is all-seeing, the one who is all-knowing, the one who is everywhere present, the one who is, who is almighty. Thy will be done. Praying, God will provide. God will give that which I stand in need of for today. God will provide. Pray it. It's the doctrine of prayer. To come before the Lord as an Abraham. God will provide. Ah. you imagine that sound, that rumbling in Abraham's heart at that moment? I pray, I pray, I pray that the Lord would provide. And there it is. How much more so for you and I that God has provided the ultimate, full, complete sacrifice. How much more will he not do? If he loved us so much that he gave us his own son, do you think he will not hear the, the prayer and the cry of his people? The Lord will provide. may not be what you want, but it's what you need to conform you to the image of Christ. Fourthly, to be expectant. Providence is the doctrine that creates for us an expectancy of the future. Not of a negativism. Not of a downing, not of being, you know, down and discouraged and defeated and pessimistic about life. Leave that to those folks who think they got to wait for Christ to come. You and I live in the expectant reality that God's plan is right now 
being carried out. That Christ is ruling, that Christ is reigning, that Christ is in control of all things. And he who gave his life for you has the rulers of this world in his hands. And he can crush them at any moment. That would be according to his will. Live in the expectancy that God will provide. It's what Abraham did. It's why Abraham was willing to stand over an altar with a dagger in his hand and his son bound upon that altar and he is ready to thrust that dagger in. He lives in the expectancy that God will provide. And you and I are called to live in that same expectancy. To live being willing to give our all the glorious Christ who gave his all for us in the glorious expectancy that he, he wins because he's already won. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. Help this not to be a doctrine, Lord, that just sits in a on a page of the Westminster Confession of Faith or in the larger, shorter catechisms or in the other Reformed doctrines. May it not just be something that sits there in the pages of your word, but help us to live it. Father, there are folks in this room, even this evening, who have gone through very hard and difficult trials. Trials, Lord, that that I hope I never have to walk in this life. They have suffered great loss. There has been great pain. There has been great difficulties. Whether it be because of illness or sickness, whether it be because of the loss of a loved one, whether it be, Father, because of sinful things of the past that have brought about consequences in their lives today. Yet, Father, for them, this word is true. That as believers in Jesus Christ, you're at work with a plan and a purpose. And you're conforming them to the glorious image of Christ. Some folks here are, are dealing with parents who don't even remember their names anymore. They go and visit them and they don't even know they're there. They don't even know who they are. They have to ask. We might say, why, Lord? And the Lord, you've told us tonight, I've got a plan, I've got a purpose, and I'm conforming them and you to the glorious image of Christ. And what an expectation is created within us then of a new heaven and a new earth. Some, as I mentioned, are dealing with sin and the past sins that they have committed and it kind of holds over their life as a dark cloud. We can talk about justification, we can talk about atonement, we can talk about forgiveness, but that, just, that dark cloud just keeps coming back and coming back. Father, for them too, this doctrine holds great hope and great promise and great comfort. 
For you are true to all of your promises. And someday, living in the expectation of Christ coming again to judge the living and the dead, we know that we shall dwell in a place where there is no more sin. Lord, we look in the past and we see the marvelous ways you have moved and formed throughout history to bring about our presence in this room upon this time. We're here tonight because you wanted us here. You wanted us in this room this evening. You wanted us to hear this word. That's part of your plan. It's part of your purpose. Help us to listen. Help us to hear. Help us to live. And help us to celebrate the fact that our God has a plan and a purpose. And it gives us hope. Gives us meaning. Gives us great joy. In Christ's name, God's people say, Amen.